Hi everyone, this is International Society of Hypertension Podcast. I'm Associate Professor Francine Marques from Monash University, Australia, and my co-host is Dr. Augusto Montesano from the University of Glasgow, Scotland. Today we have the pleasure to interview Professor Neil Coulter. Neil is a professor of preventative cardiovascular medicine at the Imperial College London and the past president of the British Hypertension Society and the International Society of Hypertension. Professor Porter is also the chief investigator of the May Measurement Month, an annual global blood pressure screening campaign that was initiated uh, during his time as president of the International Society of Hypertension. Neil, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Uh, we're really excited to be able to interview you. Thanks, Francine. Pleasure. And, <laughs> and Neil, can you tell us about your story? How did you start in the field of hypertension and how did you get involved in research? Yeah, I can. It's a long story. I'm very old. So I'll go back to the beginning. And um, I went to medical school very young. I was just 18. And I was due to qualify at the age of 22, which didn't seem very fair on anybody. So I had an opportunity to go off to work, do a research thing at the Tropical Metabolism Research Unit in Kingston, Jamaica, uh, for a year. So I took that opportunity and did a year's research in malnutrition, lab-based research in malnutrition and got a few publications, which was quite good for a medical student in those days. Uh, and so I got that experience of living in Jamaica. Now, if you then fast forward to when I was a senior house officer, not quite sure what I was going to do in life, but I thought I would want to do medicine in some way. Uh, the professor of clinical pharmacology at the time, Peter Sever, who was a rising name in the world of hypertension, was interested in urban rural differences in blood pressure. And he wanted to look uh, in different parts of the world where he thought there might be differences between blockbusters in urban rural settings. And he asked me if, if I thought I could do a little research thing in Jamaica. So I said, yeah, sure. So I took about five friends and we went off to Jamaica and we did a urban rural comparison of blood pressures over about five to six weeks. And we had an absolutely fantastic time. For my shame, and I, I really am embarrassed about this, we never published the results. But that's that was how it got how I got into it. And then subsequently, I went on to do the registrar rotation at St Mary's Hospital, which was the medical school I trained in. And that's where Peter Sever worked, and Professor Sir Stanley Peart, who was the doyen of hypertension. And uh, Stan Peart was uh, one of the trustees of the Wellcome Trust. And the work that they were doing in the laboratories in Nairobi were on schistosomiasis, and it was deemed, it was thought that the work was coming to an end, and they wanted some new ideas about what to do. Um, Professor Sir Stanley Peart, obviously being interested in hypertension, influenced the Wellcome trustees and said he thought they should do work on hypertension as a growing problem in Africa. So uh, because I'd had my six weeks experience in Jamaica, they said, oh, he'll do. So they, they sent me off, uh, packed me off to Nairobi, to the laboratories in Nairobi to try and set up a research program in hypertension, really around looking at the origins of raised blood pressure. And the idea was to go off and try and find a population 
somewhere in Kenya where blood pressure didn't rise with age. And then presumably in a remote area, watching those people go into Nairobi, migrating into a city and watching their blood pressures rise. And to cut a long story short, the idea was for one year to go and see if it was feasible, see if I could find a population, which I did. But then they sprung a surprise and said, well, why don't you stay for another couple of years and get the whole thing going and get this study going? So I did. And then they said, they obviously wanted to keep me out of the way. So they said, well, you stay until the end. So I did. So I did five years um, in Nairobi and I found a population at about the third attempt where blubbishes didn't rise with age. And I set up a migration study and I did some other clinical trials whilst I was there. So I was there for five years. I did pop back for three months each year to be senior registrar on the medical units at St Mary's. So I kept up clinical practice and I was seeing patients. I had clinics as well in Nairobi. So that's how I really got involved with it. That was 80 to 85. I warned you I was very old. Um, and obviously during that time, presenting the work, getting publications, went to the British Hypertension Society, as it was called then. It's now the British and Irish Hypertension Society and to the European meetings and to the ISH meetings. So that, in a word, was how I got involved and have been involved ever since. That was like an amazing new, like amazing story. Like I had no idea that you spent so much time like outside, like in a Nairobi and all of that. Great yeah. story. And we should expand on that later on. But before that, uh, Francine mentioned that like that you participated heavily in many different societies and have has con contributed a lot to them. But if you like just change the perspective a little bit, and if you look back, so when you look back at your participation at these societies, how did they help you to build your career and how did they contribute to your career development? Well, I think certain types of people are good and like being on committees um, and some don't. And I think, I think as a general rule, if the committee hasn't got any teeth, so if it hasn't got a budget or it hasn't got any influence, then it's not massively useful very often. And I think one's got to weigh that up against your time commitments, because, you know, obviously, certainly uh, when I first started, we've got very long hours, clinical hours and all the rest of it in the research time. So being on committees just for the sake wasn't, to my mind, a good thing to do. But... I got lucky with the British uh, Hypertension Society, got in, involved with that on a committee. It was a small committee, but at the time I thought it really mattered. You know, we produced guidelines every few years and the British uh, guidelines before NICE were, were pretty influential. I mean, and NICE are too, but they were pretty influential. And so uh, it was an important thing to be involved with. And I, I really enjoyed it. And the good things about it is you sort of get to your networking with people, you make friendships, you learn to listen. I think when you first go onto a committee or as a junior person, you're, you're, um, you feel as though you've got to say something and there's a danger in responding to that knee-jerk reaction. You just, you know, if you've got something to say, say it, if it's worthwhile, but don't say it for the sake sort of thing. And so you get to learn and, and network and of course, you get experience in managing things as medics. By and large, we've got no training. We have no training in teaching either, do we? Not that we're supposed to teach and we're never taught how to teach. You're supposed to manage. You're never taught how to manage. And this gives you a way of learning management skills, 
part of which involved listening to everybody else around the table, getting on with them, trying to make things work and generating good, um, good plans, hopefully. And you can extrapolate that to your own research programs and to other committees, etc. Yeah, no, I, I love that. And that they, um, they say, uh, at least here in Australia, that uh, we have two ears and one mouth and we should use it in that ratio. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a great comment. I love yeah. it. Um, and uh, Neil, can you, can you define your mentorship experience in one word? No. But if you force, if I'm allowed, yeah. if I'm allowed more than a couple of words, um, people who mentored me, um, I had a clinically Peter Sever and academically, he and I were friends, we played rugby together, but he was significantly senior to me and he was a great mentor. On the other end of life was Professor Jeff Rose, who was an epidemiologist, and those two together, and really sort of almost above those two was Stan Peart, Professor Sir Stanley Peart. He was much less hand-on, but Peter and Jeff both sort of nurtured me. They looked after me from an epidemiological and an academic point of view. Um, from my point of view, the people I've mentored, I haven't had a hell of a lot of people I've mentored. Having said that, when I was in Kenya for five years, we had pairs of medical students used to come out and they have an eight week or 10 week elective working with me uh, in way out in the bush in, in uh, Western Kenya. So I had lots of juniors like that. And since then, I've probably had four or five people, perhaps a bit more, who've worked with me for several years. And they've been a joy to work with and a real pleasure for me. But in terms of people mentoring me, it was Peter Sever and Jeff Rose. But one word, sorry, I failed. And how important was the mentorship to you, Neil? Um, well, again, I think it varies on the sort of person. To me, it mattered a lot. I didn't know quite what I was going to do when I went into medicine. I didn't have a, a particular angle. I remember thinking rheumatology was very interesting because it brought in all sorts of, of systems, and I quite liked that. But it was really my uncertainty as to where to go. But once I'd had the Jamaican experience, and then I went off, I was sort of launched, uh, you know, once I'd got out into Africa and doing this five years of research there in hypertension, I was sort of going along in hypertension. Um, but there, what to do when I came back from uh, Nairobi after five years, now what's she going to do? Uh, there I was sort of senior registrar, what's she going to do? And uh, Jeff said, I think you need to do an MSc in epidemiology. Um, which I did, and I just loved it. I mean, I just, I'm really, really glad I did that. And by the same time, Peter Sever, who um, was very much a hypertension clinical pharmacologist, I wanted to get hypertension. I sort of drifted into lipids and other things that I thought broadened the scope, the cardiovascular prevention side of things. And so Peter and I worked together. He is the big name in hypertension. I was able to influence that. So there was synergy between mentor and mentee working together and evolving an approach towards hypertension in terms of our research. So um, it, was, it was very important to me, very important. But there are other people who are much more capable in terms of being self-motivated. They know exactly what they want to do. And, you know, they can use other people a little bit to go up the ladder. But for me, I needed a bit of 
more strong direction initially and and uh, I'm very grateful for that which I received from Peter and uh, Jeff Rose. And Neil, what is your mentoring style and can you give us any examples of how you have helped your mentees? Um, well, I'd, I'd like to think that it's a mixture of sort of looking after people and, and friendship. If you, when you work with people for several years, you become friends. And the same token, I think you've got to look after people in it without being too paternalistic. Um, so you've got to give your mentees opportunities, I think, opportunities with the authorships, with invitations. When you're invited to go to a meeting, can I bring this junior person? And if you're asked to give a talk on that junior person's work, you say, no, you need to ask my junior person. This is the person who's done the work. It's much better that they talk to you about it, or at least they show up and they get recognized for it. I think um, at one point, I got very lucky and I was phoned up by a drug company and they got a, a, a large amount of money in excess at the end of the financial year and they wanted to donate it to a research group and we were lucky. So we set up a, a thing called a Foundation for Circulatory Health. So we put in a million pounds into this foundation. We were able to use that to provide seed grants for people. You know, when you're first trying to get going and you can't because you're not famous enough. So this person doesn't know anything, so I won't give them any money. So I don't give them a chance to learn anything. So we had chances to get seed grants going, to get pilot studies, and that enabled people to get grants themselves, which I think was one of the things I'm really delighted about looking back. And, and Neil, looking back, like in your uh, mentorship um, experience, so a lot of like mentees, when they started their mentorship, they don't know, let's say, not how to behave, but like they don't know how, what kind of skills they need in order to take advantage of this uh, opportunity. So, in your point of view, um, what do you think? Like, what kind of trait or uh, behavior? or what a mentee can do in order to take advantage of a mentorship relationship? Well, it's slightly old fashioned, but I think if people are hardworking, you know, that's a big bonus. If somebody comes along and shows up, they don't arrive at meetings, they're a bit too busy, they don't do, that's irritating. If you're hardworking and you want to look after somebody, you expect a bit of feedback. So I think, I think it's being able to work together and you work hard for them, they work hard for you. So it's, it's sort of symbiosis. And I think one of the things I've been very lucky at is the people I've looked after a little bit, um, they've had their own ideas. And that's been marvelous to be able to work with that. And you both gain, it becomes good fun. You, you learn from each other and to be able to work with the other person with their ideas is really rewarding. Apart from somebody just doing what, do as I say, follow this, do that. Uh, occasionally that's probably, a, a, a right thing to say early on, but it's listening and getting them good idea. Let's go down that alleyway and, and learning that way. So they're the things I think, hard work, listening um, and, and generating own ideas. If people have got their own ideas, then it's always a much more effective relationship, I think. And uh, Neil, if you would give someone advice on how they find a good lab to join at, to do a PhD or to do a postdoc, 
what do you think people really need to be looking for in a new research team? Yeah. Well, it's always difficult, isn't it? Because individual personalities, occasionally somebody gets on really well with one mentor, doesn't with another person. So you've got to be careful. But I, I guess you're looking for a track record, aren't you, Francine? You want, you want a track record, you know, and you can speak to previous people who've been through that place. Oh, it's marvellous. It, they're generous. They're helpful. Or, oh, I wasn't very impressed. They wouldn't let me go to meetings. They, uh, And that's something, you know... Being mean with young people is absolutely the wrong thing to do. If you've got money in the coffers, then make sure they get to the meetings, support them. This goes back a little bit to what I think we should be doing. But yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a having a track record of a unit and of individuals, speak to other people who've been there. And if they give you the, the sort of things you want in life, that's the pace for you as well. And Neil, I'd just like to expand now a little bit of your experiences in Jamaica and Nairobi. Uh, so you moved from the UK to these two different places and the coach, culturally, they're completely different. So how was the experience of like a culture shock and how did you adapt to, to these two different cultures? Well, first of all, age 22, going to Jamaica was a ball. It was absolutely fantastic. There was another guy in my ear did the same thing and the two of us showed up there I remember the first night getting bitten to death by mosquitoes. My first experience of that was, and the paradox was two of us were in the same room, bed side by side. He had zero bites and I had about 340. So I just, someone needs to explain that to me, but I went and I played rugby for the Jamaican president's 15. So that was marvelous, but I also had a superb time. It was an incredibly friendly atmosphere. The people in the lab were very generous and kind, and you soon got mixed up into this, um, the, the society through, through playing rugby, through work, all sorts of things. Everyone was very, very friendly. It, was, um, it wasn't quite as violent. I mean, Jamaica became a slightly more violent place a few years later, but around then, uh, 1972, it was just a marvellous place to be and a good opportunity. And again, the people who looked after me, I got my name on papers and they gave me work and I, it was, I, I loved it. Fantastic time, made some friends for life. Um, then we go on to 1980. That was when I went to Nairobi, married. Um, not when I was there, I was married or I went there. And we had essentially five years there. And that's, as you say, it's a totally different setup um different from uh, ethnic mixing you know in jamaica everybody was mixed up and ethnically um diverse whereas um kenya in 1980 you felt it was almost tripartite um there were the whites the uh, africans and the south asian communities and they lived and interspersed socially pretty separately interestingly then so that was different um but again, it was a beautiful place to be. The work was, was um, novel, trying to find a place in rural Africa where blobbishes didn't rise with age was a hell of a challenge, but it was, was fantastic. I loved it. And I was doing clinics back in Nairobi, with um, uh, hypertension clinics and doing little clinical trials of that. So fabulous experience, loved it. And the chance to come back, I think that was quite useful, three months each year to be back on the medical unit, see, seeing for my own clinical training was important. I kept that up. Uh, but in terms of two experiences, I couldn't have wished for anything better. And it's also quite difficult 
you know, if you say to me, well, how, how do you get on to do what you've done sort of thing? Why would you want to do that? But if you did, it would be difficult because there was no clear plan. I, I was lucky to have got these two things that came up. So it's difficult to encourage people to follow a line, but uh, I couldn't be more positive about the two long trips away I'd had. And if you don't mind, you know, like just to present, like try like a little more question here. So like how was to you to work with a community, like uh, how rewarding was to you um, to be really close to a community and doing some work that will reflect on something really good to them? Well, the experience in rural um, Kenya, which is on, it was on the northeast shores of Lake Victoria, it's sort of an ear, it's just sort of over the, the ear of northeast co uh, coast of, of, of Lake Victoria, Siaya district. It was about 35, population about 35,000. And once I discovered that the blubbishes didn't rise with age, there was a bit of a, there was a thing called the Saradidi Rural Health Project, where all the houses had been numbered. And there was a census, so we knew who was there. So I could do a random sample, for example, virtually impossible anywhere else in, in rural Kenya, you can imagine. But we were able to get a random sample, and, and I did clinics. I mean, we had meetings with the local called Barazas, where you met with the local population, spoke to the elders, got their agreement that you could come in and do this. And then I did clinics, and because I was the only doctor showing up, um, that became quite popular and it was it was difficult because people would walk for three days to come to the clinic and there'd be hundreds, hundreds of people. If I would go there, say, to do a day's clinic, there, it was just not possible. Um, I persuaded lots of local pharmacists to give me all sorts of medicines. So I used to show up with boxes and boxes of medicines and things, uh, which, but I, the chances for making a, an accurate diagnosis and having time to do that was, was, wasn't there really. So it was, it was a challenge, but it was just, just fantastic really. And I enjoyed it enormously. Uh, I, you can imagine trying to do a random sample, go to one uh, home and try and do the blood pressures there. And then people from another home and say, what about us? You haven't come to our hut. So, you know, we'd have to go around and we were doing them all over the place. And we had to remember which were the randomized ones and which were, were not. Um, but we, yeah, I, I loved it. It was, it was tremendous and it was very sad leaving. We had marvelous leaving parties um, from the rural area. And it was, it really was remote, you know. We had a gas fridge, we had a little gas fridge and we had what's called Makuti roof, you know, the grass roof. We made our own hut there. And there was no running water, no electricity, obviously. And um, and we just, but we did have a gas fridge so we could make some ice cubes. And so we could take gin and we'd have these ice cubes and some tonic bottles. And then you'd go outside and just put your hand up a tree and hope you didn't get bitten by a mamba. And there were a lot of them about and pull down a lime. And we had fresh limes from the tree into our own gin and tonics made uh, via the gas fridge. It was wonderful. We, it, it was just a fabulous experience. It sounds extraordinary, yeah, and uh, and I think it's the perfect uh, description. Like even the passion uh, as you're telling this story now, you can tell that um, it is the perfect description of why many of us become medical researchers. On your case, a clinician is to be able to give back to the community and help other people. So that's just fabulous. Yeah, thank you for sharing that with us. Pleasure, pleasure.
And um, new, uh, for some of us, uh, myself included, uh, many times when we go to a conference, so we see someone that we want to talk to, sometimes it can feel a little bit intimidating. Um, I don't know whether you have ever felt that way, but I was just wondering if you had any advice for the people listening, if they ever feel intimidated to talk to someone like yourself, what they can do to help and how they can uh, overcome that. Well, first of all, I hope I don't intimidate everybody, anybody. Um, but if I have done, I apologize. I remember there was a well-known Australian called Austin Doyle. When, when I was sort of under Peter Sever and sort of coming out um, as a hypertension doc, Austin Doyle was a very frightening bloke. And I, the, the, I found the uh, best thing to do was say nothing unless you had something useful to say. If it, was, if it was worth listening to, say it. Otherwise, don't. I mentioned that earlier about being on committees. Do not feel compelled to speak just because you're there. <laughs> Austin frightened me to death. Um, but uh, it never came to blows or anything like that. We're OK. I just kept quiet, basically. <laughs> please don't keep quiet with me. If, if anyone wants to talk to me, please do. I hope I won't intimidate you. I love it. There's so many people that I think would say the same about Austin. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> So, Neil, uh, like changing a little bit like to uh, a topic of diversity and inclusion and uh, taking in account your, your clinical background, what do you think is the biggest issue around diversity and inclusion, especially in our field and in hypertension research? Well, taking a slightly parochial view, I direct the Imperial Clinical Trial Unit, and we've got about 80 people, and I would say... 85% of that group are women, which obviously in the past has been a problem, you know, the inequalities, but we've got an excess, not an excess, we have a, the majority uh, are women. We've also got a very broad multi-ethnic group here. I would think um, only about half are, are white in, in my unit, which I'm delighted about. Because I spent five years in Africa and a year in Jamaica, and I also um, ran the WHO study on cardiovascular disease and oral contraception, and that was in 17 countries around the world. So I, I used to travel to each of those countries at least once a year. So I've had huge exposure. And I think some of the problems with um, racism, etc., are about lack of exposure once you meet people around the world from all these different countries and realize what delightful people are and you've got you've got bad people everywhere but you know you've got delight that you you break down those barriers and i think that's been really helpful for me and moving on to may measurement month which francine mentioned earlier in over 100 countries we've been in we've had one investigator meeting where 50 countries showed up and that sort of admixture just makes you take a broader view and you understand uh, I think and you have a stronger feel for um, the concerns about sexism and racism and it puts the really important things in perspective and helps you to to enjoy those relationships. Absolutely and Neil I'm glad you mentioned the May Measurement Month. I was wondering if you could tell us uh, how did you have the idea to start the May Measurement Month? Like, wh why did you think that that was important and that was visible as well? Yeah, well, it was, 
you know, in the run-up to becoming president, you you present, you have a small presentation and, and, and say what you're going to do if you get voted in. And I'd recently read the pure data published by Salim Yusuf, which showed 46.5% of hypertensives were aware that they got hypertension. And it occurred to me then there's absolutely no point in messing around trying to work out the best fourth line agent if half the world don't even know they've got it. And so that was, you know, just seemed massively important. And it's such a huge killer that to have World Hypertension Day, which is May 17th, for something that killed, I think at the time it was 9.4 million people were quoted. It's now 10.8 and more. It's 9.4 million. Just one day for World Hypertension Day? You know, there's, 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 there's World Influenza Day and World Everything Else Day, isn't there? And it just seemed to me that we should make a splash. So I then rather foolishly came up with May Measurement Month as the idea. And I also made some outlandish ideas about trying to screen 25 million people in one year, which was completely off mark. But at least if you aim for the stars, you hit the ceiling, don't you? And we did. But uh, that's how it began. Just it occurred to me that if we're really going to make a big difference, we've got to improve the awareness. You know, if you, if you make the control perfect in everyone who's treated, you're still only dealing with a small minority because only a small minority are treated. So the way to open the gates was the awareness thing. So that's, and, and May Measurement Month just came out of the fact that it was World Hypertension Day was May 17. And then away we went. And it's been, as you know, um, we had to cancel 2020, but it's happening this year, sometime between May and the end of November, anytime you like, from May to the end of November, we're doing it now. And we had, prior to that, in the three campaigns, we'd screened over 4.2 million people. And that included almost a million who were untreated or inadequately treated. So it's, you know, at the individual level, at least, it's really raised awareness. But I think it also has at the population level. So I'm very proud of it. Now, it's an, a, a remarkable achievement and show very strong leadership to be able to mobilize so many uh, researchers and the countries around the world to be able to get together and do this initiative. It's wonderful. Well, thank you. It's a reflection on them, you know, because most of the work is happening in these 104 countries. And those people, they're volunteers. They've gone out, they've raised their own money. It's just been a fantastic, in Swahili, say Harambe. It's a real Harambe effort. Everybody has pulled together and done the, you know, raised this thing. And it's, it's gathering momentum, too, I'm delighted to say. Yeah. So my team has been involved in the past two years and has been really wonderful as a teaching uh, experience for them as well because they get to, they, they, most of them are um, just uh, lab-based researchers. They get to understand better about hypertension and they get the opportunity to talk to people and explain why it's important. So it has been a really good training opportunity as well for our PhD students. Yeah. yeah. I think interestingly all around the world, you know, they've, in some countries they've trained nurses to measure blood pressure, they've trained healthcare professionals um, at a, a sort of lower level to measure blood pressure properly. So it has had a spin-off all around the world. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and still, oh, sorry, go to, there you go. Oh, no, I was just going to, uh, to move on like to our, our next question. You know, it's about like, it's still about like an uh, inclusion and in this case focused on the women in research. I like we had the opportunity to um, and it's a good link for the main measurement month because we had the opportunity to interview a few people 
uh, that participate in the in this uh, event, and they were all like strong women researchers in Africa and other uh, countries that really participate in that. And as you may know, uh, there is a lack of uh, women or there's a big need, let's say like that, a women, a more women in hypertension because of the uh, leaking uh, pipeline uh, theory. So when you look back, uh, or if you're talking like to our women that listen to our podcast, what advice would give to them for them to stay strong and stay in research and not leave research? Well, that's why I support that basic ideas hang on in there I, I just like to say things are not great um, from a diversity from a, a, a sex point of view but they're a hell of a lot better than they were things are improving remarkably and we've just got to keep that going um, I think we just need more of the same from within ISH Rianne Tooze was the president before me and it was her idea to get women in hypertension as a committee and as a a positive drive within ISH. And I think that's reflected in the membership. And I think it's a, a, a fantastic thing. We've just got to keep doing it. Interestingly, as you mentioned, MMM, this time we've asked questions 2021 on oral contraceptive use and HRT. We've got a group, um, Francine and others are involved with uh, pregnancy associated hypertension using the MMM database. So there's a database there for those who want to get involved academically with MMM and absolutely encourage anybody in NSH who's interested and thinks there's anything from MMM they could work on, please come to us. Um, but as you say, strong women. Um, I remember when I was president, the delegation from Sudan with four women and they were, you know, just gloriously dressed, just striking group of women came in and uh, they were just remarkable in the work they've done in Sudan. And another anecdote was I gave a talk to the Lithuanian Cardiology Society and gave the talk, it was on hypertension, and then sat down, we had lunch afterwards and all my table was all women. And then I sort of looked around the room and it was 95% women. And I said, this is your cardiology society. And they said, yeah. I said, well, how come there aren't many men here? They said, well, uh, we're very egalitarian in Lithuania. And in order to get into medical school, we take the best academics. And women do better than men in the exams to get into medical school. So I said, oh, OK, well, that's fantastic. And I said, well, what about cardiology? Because that's pretty famous for having lots of you know, type A surgical type characters involved. And they said, well, it's the same story to get, once you're at medical school and you're qualified, the exams to get into cardiology are a meritocracy and the ones who do best are women. So that's, so that was how they got their big numbers there. But then I said, but, but who does all, who does all the reaming out and the uh, interventional procedures? Oh yeah, interventional cardiology, we agree. The plumbers, they're men. But the rest of us who think uh, they're all women. So I thought there's a there's a great um, example being set by both Sudan and Lithuania. They're two big experiences for my mind. They, they've just been stunning. And I would just say to the ISH members, let's keep going. It's more and more. It's great to see more female uh, members and see them on the chairs and see them getting prizes. 
Um, you know, so more of the same, but we shouldn't, we shouldn't be too depressed. Things are getting better, perhaps not quickly enough, but they have changed an enormous amount in the last 20 years even. Yeah, no, that, that's a, a very inspiring story to hear. And uh, um, our final question to you uh, is about our junior researchers that are involved in the society, but uh, researchers in general. Um, it is a very tough time to be a junior researcher with a lot of uh, um, yeah, times not being allowed to do research with uh, also lack of uh, research funding that you mentioned before, some initiatives. Uh, that have been successful in the past, but these days it has been really hard to get any type of uh, funding, uh, even from uh, foundations such as the British Heart Foundation and, and Australian likewise too. I was wondering if you had any ideas or suggestions of how we can as a community to care and do better for our junior researchers. Well, good question, Francine, but a difficult one to answer. You, you've put the nail on the head by saying we're short of money and BHF is an example. The charities are short of money, everybody's short of money. And underpinning most of our activities is spare money and just, it isn't about. Um, the locally, the, the opportunity of COVID itself gives research questions for all of us, doesn't it? But it doesn't give you the money to be able to go and answer those questions. Uh, I mentioned earlier, we got, we've got three questions on COVID in this year's MMM. So if anyone's interested in COVID uh, and wants to get involved, please get in touch. We will be, um, once the database has been pulled together, that the sort of beginning of next year, we'll, we'll be able to uh, give access to those. But in terms of finances, I have nothing clever except try and find somebody extremely rich and look after their hypertension and persuade them to give a donation, a large donation to your research fund. It's, it's, you know, it's opportunism like that. It's the only thing you can do at a time like this. There's no money about. So we've just got to do the best we can, pull together, work together, and hang on in there until things turn around again. There are going to be some new drugs coming out, I think, in the near future. That often brings research money back into the scene, but I think it'll be a couple of years that will start to happen. Um, so we'll see, but but your, your point is, it's a depressing note to end on. We don't have enough money, do we? And it, you know, COVID has made it worse, but I think we should think positively. Um, within a couple of years, things will be back to where they were, I guess, I hope. I think, I think it's such based on, uh, oh, sorry, Francine. No, I was just going to say, it is not such a, a depressing uh, uh, end to finish when you're saying that there are opportunities for research and there are new opportunities for research. And I think that also gives the community hope to keep going because, yeah. as we mentioned, we're passionate about what we do. So hopefully that uh, helps to keep people going for a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And, and you said something really, really important to me, like it's work together. So like, uh, and I think one thing that COVID taught us is that like, uh, it doesn't matter lockdown or no lockdown and everything. If we work together, we can overcome. Absolutely. Uh, we've persuaded some, well, it doesn't take a lot of persuasion, but we've got some medical students who are going to move into vaccination centers in UK and in a couple of other countries and measure the blood pressures post-vaccination. You know, it's a little mini project sort of thing, but none of us are quite sure what's going to happen in that setting. And obviously there's bias in that, there'll be people who 
got the hypotensive because they want to faint, and the others will be blobbish will be right up because they've been terrified of the experience. But nevertheless, the idea of it reminds us, you know, because COVID killed uh, or rather raised blood pressure about 30,000 deaths a day due to raised blood pressure. COVID has never killed 30,000 deaths per day and never will do. And the 30,000 from blood pressure is going to go up and the COVID deaths are going to go around. Come on it down for one extent or another over the next couple of years, it will. And so we've got to remember that blood pressure in terms of killing people is bigger than COVID and we mustn't lose sight of that. We've got to, and use the opportunities, go to your own vaccination centers and see if you can work with them on blood pressures and stuff, for mini projects, that sort of thing, um, just opportunistic ideas. But I, th I think someone extremely rich as a patient is a very good idea. Love it. <laughs> Thank you so much. And it has been a, a big pleasure and uh, so so lovely to hear all your stories. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank, Thank, you. Thank you both very much indeed. Lovely to speak to you and all my very best to everybody. Thank you for listening to our interview. If you'd like more tips on mentoring, subscribe to our podcast for more interviews with senior and emerging leaders. Stay safe, open-minded and kind.